It's good to be here. Amen. It's awesome. Thank you for being here today. If you have your Bible, grab those and go to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. Today's passage is John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And what we see in this passage is the realization of Jesus. But not the realization of himself, but of us in the world to him. It is the world's light bulb moment, so to speak. Today we will begin reading, though, in verse 9, and we will go to verse 18. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the privilege, to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace overflowing. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Amen and amen. Real quick, Dwight, can you turn on the pulpit, pulpit lights for me? I'm standing in a shadow. Thank you. As I've already mentioned, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 is what I would say is the realization of Jesus. And now that I've spent hours and hours, thank you, that's much, much better. Um, I feel like I'm glowing right now. Okay. Um, anyway, kind of pro- I probably am. Okay. But after spending hours and hours and hours in study and research and preparation of John chapter 1, finally now, after three weeks, I finally, so to speak, see the forest through the trees. I'm sorry that it took me three weeks to do so. Uh, Sometimes it takes me to warm up a few weeks to a new book. But John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is what we would call the prologue of the gospel of John. It is really the beginning. It is setting the stage for all of the gospel. And what I see in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18, it breaks down into three main chunks. Chunk number one is the reality of Jesus. John chapter one, verses one through five. Chunk number two is the reason for Jesus, which is in verses six through thirteen. And then chunk number three is the realization of Jesus, which is in verses fourteen through eighteen. Number one, the reality of Jesus. What I mean by that is who is Jesus? That Jesus is not just some man. He isn't just some prophet or some good teacher. He is far more. And what do we say he was? Number one, that Jesus is fully God, right? That Jesus was pre-existent. Verse one, in the beginning was the word that God existed before time itself. That Jesus was in the presence of God and the word was with God and that Jesus is a person of God and the word was God. But Jesus is more. Jesus also creates more. John chapter 1, verse 3, all things 
came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. But Jesus is more. Jesus is life. What does it say in verse 4? In him was life, was zoe, was aliveness. Not a physical love or life, but a spiritual life. And notice it says, in him. We can find aliveness, not in the world or in our own devices or in our possessions, but in him and him alone can we be restored from eternal darkness to eternal aliveness. But Jesus is more. Number four, he is the light of the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. Jesus is the light, he is the hope, he is the truth, he is the explanation of God to each of us. He is the realization of the gospel, the redemptive love story of God. He is the light of the world, piercing into the darkness. Jesus is, in reality, he is those four things. And then we see the reason for Jesus. Why did Jesus come? If you've grown up at church, you've probably heard a thousand times from Sunday school classes, you probably have a lot of answers to that question of why Jesus came to earth. We know he came for many reasons, right? To pay for the sins of the world, to reveal the Father, to glorify the Father, to model righteous living, to give us life. But he came for another reason as well. John chapter 1 verse 9, what does it say? There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus came into the world to shine the light of the gospel continually to all people. To give us the knowledge and opportunity to receive him by faith and become his child. And then today in John chapter 1 verses 1 through, verses 14 through 18 is the realization of Jesus. Now what do I mean by realization? Realization is defined by the dictionary as this, an act of becoming fully aware of something as a fact. Let me repeat that. A realization is defined as an act of becoming fully aware of something as fact. And that is today. How many of you have ever had a moment of realization? I would say this way. How many of you have ever had a light bulb go off in your mind before? Okay. Probably all of us. And what is that moment like? It's, a ma- it's probably a little bit shocking. It's when everything begins in, in that particular sphere, so to speak, or circumstance. when everything begins to make sense. A moment of realization happened in our culture on January 17th of 2013. Now, where were you on that date? I don't know, okay? On January 17, 2013, a moment of realization happened in our culture. A light bulb went off. You may or may not remember this, but on that day, Lance Armstrong, the cyclist, was interviewed by Oprah, if you remember that. On that day, we had a realization about him, that he really did cheat, right? He admitted to all of it, that all the rumors were true. It was the moment of realization that this savior of cycling, so to speak, was really darkness. Today is the opposite of that. 
Today we see the Word become flesh. We see Him in the flesh as the light and as the embodiment of the glory and grace of God. That is the realization that we will see in John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. We will see His arrival in verse 14 and His glory and grace in verses 15 through 18. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go there once again. But before I begin unpacking it, I'm going to share with you a hope that I have. Today I hope... I hope today is a moment of realization for you that today we see the actual character and glory and majesty and grace and love of Jesus Christ. I hope that today we see him in the overflow of his life, that we realize Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, a lot of times we have a misconception of Jesus. Today, I hope that you encounter Jesus Christ as a moment of realization that He is the truth, that He is your Savior, and that He is the light to your life and to the light of the world. And I hope today, through this realization, through this light bulb moment that I just popped on, okay, I hope that this realization drives away all doubts of who He truly is. Notice with me in John chapter 1, verse 14. We notice his arrival. Notice that very first phrase. And the word became flesh. Kai ha lagos sarks egeneto. That when the word became flesh. My first point today is quite simple. And we all know it to be true if you've been in church for a while. Point number one is that God became man. Based on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we know the Word is God, is Jesus. He is fully divine. He is the only begotten of the Father. And He became human. And He took on all of its limitations. Jesus, despite having existed in eternity past, despite having infinite power at His fingertips, despite creating the world... Despite being bound by nothing, that he is outside of the bounds of an infinite universe, that despite being completely boundless, he decided to bound himself in this flesh. He became human. At the moment of his birth, Jesus, what now, needs to take naps, right? We all probably want one this afternoon, right? Does anybody get a Sunday nap? Alright, so he needed naps, he needed to eat. He was bound by the limitations of probably sleepless nights. Jesus needed a haircut. How many of you still need a haircut? Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, I just, myself, I don't need a barber. Okay. Jesus needed to take a bath. Maybe like some of us here today. Jesus needed to go to the bathroom. He was all, he was bound by the limitations of being human despite having infinite power. But the question is, is why did he become human? Why did the word become flesh? Four letters. Love. Because of his love for you and his love for me, he decided to come down as a baby to live 33 years or so to speak for the purpose to enlighten every man to the gospel and to pay for the sins of the world. The phrase, we have heard that phrase in verse 14 probably so many times, it becomes like, bleh. 
But verse 14, and the word became flesh, is a love story of heavenly proportions. And notice, what did Jesus do when he took on flesh? What does it say? What's the name? So, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. I want you to circle that word dwelt. I'm going to unpack it for us. That word dwelt specifically refers to the dwelling glory of God on earth. And is referred to in his tabernacle specifically. One commentator says that this is the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory is basically a Hebrew, and Shekinah is a, Shekinah is a Hebrew word that means dwelling. That God's glory was dwelling amongst his people. The Shekinah glory of God is demonstrated in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 37. It says this, this is the Shekinah glory, the glory that Jesus brought to earth. Verse 34 of Exodus 40 describes it. Then a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all of the travels of the Israelites, wherever, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out, but if the cloud did not lift up, They did not set out until the day it was lifted. When it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, I believe that John is saying that the very essence of God's glory is upon Jesus as he walks the earth. But this makes so much more sense when you read verse 14, right? And the word became human, flesh, dwelt among us, the glory of God dwelt among us, and then what does it say? And we saw his glory. Why did they see his glory? Because his very presence and existence and essence is the very glory of God. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Point number two today is God became man, revealing his glory. The reason they saw the glory of God is because Jesus was the glory of God. Why was he the glory of God? Because he is God. Can I get an amen to that one? But notice what his, notice what his glory is full of. Do you notice that? Sometimes we think of God's glory as full of anger and Mad, you know, anger and judgment. But Jesus' glory, his presence on earth is what? Is full of grace and truth. It's full of grace. What do I mean by grace? Grace right there is the Greek word charis. It basically means God's undeserved or unmerited favor. And grace is the very reason Jesus came. He came because we sinned, and with grace in one hand and love in the other, Jesus came to earth. He took on flesh out of a desire to redeem his creation. Jesus is the embodiment and the essence of God's glory, and that glory is full of grace and is full of truth. John is basically telling his audience and us today that there is no part of Jesus that is false. Every part of his being is true. But don't miss the two-letter word in verse 14. I want you to notice the text with me. Notice the 
second two-letter word you have. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is the we? That's a good question. Who is the we? Who saw the very glory of God? There's two answers, potentially. Number one, the we, the W-E here, is the whole world. And it could be that. But I take this to mean, in verse 14, it's not just referring to the whole world, but rather 12 people in the world. The we, I take it to mean, and we can talk about this later, and we can, you know, it's cool, we can have a nice, fun debate afterwards. It's cool. But the we here, in my opinion, is the 12 disciples, that the 12 disciples saw the glory of God up close and personal, that he is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When did the 12 disciples see the very glory of God? A bunch of times. The first time they see it is on the next page in your Bible. John chapter 2, verse 11. What is that story? The story is the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. And what does it say in verse 11? It says this. This is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. When else did they see him? They saw his glory where? On the Mount of Transfiguration, where it says that he was transfigured before them. He, they see it again. Jesus mentions it in John chapter 17, verse 20, 24. It says this, Father, I want those who have given me to be with me where I am, that they may see my glory and the glory you have given me, because you have loved me before the creation of the world. I believe the we here in verse 14, and I could be wrong, it's cool, it would be the first time. I see the we here in verse 14 as his 12 disciples affirming the very glory and very essence of God the Father upon Jesus as he lived. But let's answer a question. Why? Why is it important for the 12 disciples to affirm that they saw the very glory of God on, in Jesus? Why is it important that the 12 disciples affirm the glory and deity of Jesus? There is nobody closer to Jesus but the 12. We could say the 3 and the 12 also were probably closer. But the 12 disciples knew him best. Allow me to ask you the question, who knows you best in this world? What would they say about you behind closed doors? <laughs> Awkward. Okay, no nudging your neighbor, okay? Who knows you best? Maybe your wife or your best friend or your children or your brother or sister. What they would say about you behind closed doors is who you really are. Why? Because they know you best. They know your true character. Catch this. The twelve disciples, those who are closest to Jesus, are affirming and confirming to all of us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the embodiment of God's glory, full of grace and truth. But notice, they're not the only one to affirm it. There's a 13th person, verse 15. And John the Baptist testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he 
of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, wait a second. So if John was talking, so this is total rabbit trail real quick. I'm going to hop off the main course and jump on something really interesting, maybe for me. What does it say? For he existed before me. Who was born first? Physically born first. John the Baptist, right? They're cousins, right? I believe, correct? Off the top of my head. So they're cousins, but John the Baptist was born first. So what is he actually saying by, for he existed before me? He's saying that Jesus existed in eternity past. You catching my drift? So not only do the twelve disciples testify to the divine nature of Jesus, but now you have John the Baptist testifying to the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. That God's glory is dwelling within Jesus and that his glory is full of grace and truth. Now, if 13 different people all told you the same thing, if 13 different people all told you the same thing, would you believe it? Okay, so it's really, I know we're not quite as full as normal, but come on. If 13 people all told you the same thing, would you believe it? Thank you. All right, so even if it's unbelievable, if 13 different people all had the same story and all affirmed this one unbelievable fact and event, we would believe it. Friends, it doesn't get any weirder and wilder and more infinitely exploding my finite brain than God Becoming flesh. But 13 people affirmed the deity and glory of Jesus Christ while he was on earth. It was full of grace and truth. And if 13 different people affirmed it, then it is true. Catching my drift? All right. All right. A little bit more, please. Uh, <laughs> so then notice verses 16 through 18. He expands upon Jesus' glory. Verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received, notice that all, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Point number three is this, is God became man, revealing his glory and grace. God became man, revealing his glory and grace. Notice, what does it say? What did we each gain at Jesus' arrival? You can say we had it before as well, but what does it say? We received grace upon grace. What I take that to mean is that grace overflowing. But then notice there's another we here, W-E. So there's one in verse 14, but then I, you notice one in verse 16. Now, I could be wrong, once again, but I believe that this is a different we. I believe the we in verse 14 are the 12 disciples, and then I believe the we here is the world as a whole, because it says, we have all received. I think we have a mis- misconception of grace. We think of grace as only through the gospel and it is but we as human beings have all received the grace of god that's right let me give you an example of that we see grace and the fact that when when god said to adam you shall not eat of the fruit and in the day you do it you shall surely die what happened to adam yes he died eventually but he continued to live on 
But I'm just going to be, I'm going to pause on my discourse for just a second, and I'm just going to say something. I think you and I really struggle to understand grace, that we have actually received grace from God. And I believe one of the reasons why we struggle to understand God's unmerited favor is because our culture drills in our head the idea of karma. You know what I mean by that? Karma is that I get what I deserve. That's the complete opposite of grace. Grace is I do not get what I deserve, amen? But our culture tells us that we get what we deserve. I mean, just imagine this. Well, how many of you ever heard this phrase? He had it coming to him. All right. That's what is that? That is karma. They are getting what they deserve. The pounding of karma in our culture distorts and disables our understanding of grace. Great. The gospel is grace. It is not karma. We deserve none of it. Jesus is grace. He is not karma. Light is grace. This week I had this idea of what is grace really? What is this unmerited favor of God? And as a preacher, I even struggle to understand what it means, the grace of God, God's unmerited favor. I know what it means, right? I know what grace means. I learned it in Awana in second grade, right? I remember still where it is on my sheet of paper, on my little Awana book. It was on the edge and the border, and it said grace, God's unmerited favor. But my flesh and my culture has beaten down the idea of grace so much that I have a distorted view of it. Because I think that God's grace is finite. That I can somehow... Sin enough times to quench the grace of God. Have you ever thought that before? That I don't know if God will really forgive me if I do this again. But at the moment of that habitual sin, a wave of grace is present. But God's grace is more than just my own experience. It's seen in the truth of the scripture, as I've mentioned already, that God's grace is seen. God's grace upon grace is seen towards Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He says, in the day you eat the fruit, you shall die. But God's grace is more. God's grace is seen in God giving us the Old Testament law. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Through the law, the Israelites knew how to Live a righteous life. Yes, it is by faith, through faith, and on faith, but now they have guides on how to then live out that faith. But God's grace is more than that. It's more than just a list of rules. It's more than just that I live. But God's grace is explained through Jesus. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. The very nature and character of Jesus Christ is grace and truth. But God's grace is more. God's grace is seen throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus could have lived up in a monastery somewhere. Instead, he walked amongst us. He healed our sick. He took care of the lame. He made the blind see. But God's grace is more. God's grace is seen on the cross, that here is a perfectly innocent man 
that has died for my sins, and that while I was yet a sinner, while enemy of God, Christ died for us. But God's grace is even more than that. God's grace is seen in the process of sanctification, the process of becoming holy, that now as a believer in Jesus Christ, I have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit as my helper, and I have a guide who's completed an errant word. But God's grace is even more. Because one day, God's grace will be realized. God's grace will be realized either the day that I pass from this life or the day that he returns as victor over all. And in that day, what does it say in the book of Revelation? That he will wipe away all the tears. We will understand the grace of God in eternity. To be honest, to be completely transparent, I don't know if I really understand the grace of God. I don't know if I ever will. But I certainly believe that this is a start. What did John, the author, intend for his audience to know or to do? Jesus' arrival revealed the very nature of God, God's glory in verse 14, and God's grace in verses 15 through 18. And what do I want you all to know or to do? It's this, know that God became man, revealing God's glory, his Shekinah glory, walking amongst us, and his grace, his boundless unmerited favor towards us. But then the question of the hour is this, what do I do, right? What do I, how do I take this truth? It's not, John chapter 1 is not super practical, it's just a bunch of theology, but it's beautiful and it's awesome. I could spend like years here in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18. But what is the result of this truth that Jesus came, became man, and he's full of glory and grace? It is this that I'm just going to share. That this idea, the truth of John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18, should drive out all doubt about Jesus. That he is who he says he is. That he is the very embodiment of the glory of God and the grace of God. Allow me to just pry. Can I just pry? And it's, by the way, this is super random, but it's so nice not talking to a camera anymore. Okay, I'm just saying. I think if we're really truly honest, we all have doubts about God, doubts about Jesus. Even somebody who has preached the scripture for a living, who's been to seminary, who's grown up with God for 25 years of my life, so to speak. We, I even struggle with doubts about God's love and grace. But typically we have three different areas of doubt towards Jesus and towards God. It's three areas. It's on your notes if you have them. Is doubt number one is we doubt God's sovereignty, we doubt number two God's grace, and then number three we doubt God's purposes. We doubt God's sovereignty, that we doubt that He truly is in control. Can can I just say something? Can the very evidence that we struggle with God's in control is our culture, right? It's madness out there, all right? Has anybody found toilet paper yet? I'm just kidding. Okay. I certainly hope you have after eight weeks. Okay. But we struggle to really understand that God is in control. And even we as Christians, this causes us to then have certain behaviors. We try to manipulate everything. We work people. 
to get our way instead of praying. We plan every detail of our life instead of praying. We are paranoid over every detail instead of praying. But as I understand the scripture, Jesus is God, and since he is God, and since he is the creator of all, and since he has no darkness in him, that he is pure, that he is good, that he is glory, that he is grace, that he is perfection, and because of his love and his grace towards us, I know that he is in control and that he cares for each of us. Doubt number two is we doubt God's grace. You know, perhaps... We have more evidence in the scripture of God's love and grace towards each of us than anything else. But we still doubt it. We still feel, we still feel deep down, even though we know the truth, we still feel that somehow we can quench the love and grace of God. So when we feel this way, what do we do? We walk around completely and totally paranoid of everything. We make up additional rules to live by outside of the scripture themselves. And what do we really act like? Really act like the Pharisees. And they call that legalism. And then doubt number three, we finally doubt God's purposes. Let me ask you the question, and I want you to raise your hand. How many of you ever asked the question, God, why did you allow this to happen? We all do. We all struggle with the idea of, God, what is your purpose in this trial? What is your purpose in this circumstance? And a lot of times, friends, we won't know the answer to that question until we're in heaven, until we're on the other side. But in the here and now, what should we do? When you doubt, when you doubt if God truly has a purpose for the pain and sorrow and triumphs of your life, what should you do? Hold on to the promises of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says this. All things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. God is somehow, someway, taking the ugliness of the world, the trials of life, and he's using it for our good and for his glory. My hope today is that we realize, we know that Jesus became man, revealing God's glory and grace, and we allow that truth to drive out all doubts about him. I will say this on a personal level, and I will close here soon. I I really enjoy John chapter 1, because, especially this section, because it isn't flashy, it isn't super practical, it isn't super feely. It's just truth. It's the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is, why he came, and our realization to him. That Jesus is the God creator. He is a source of life and light, but he is more. Jesus came for the reason to enlighten every man to the hope of the gospel, but he is more. He took on flesh. He is more. Jesus was the embodiment of the Shekinah glory of the Father, glory of the over, everlasting, of glory of holiness and of truth, and He is the embodiment of God's glory and grace and love which overflows to us all. It is raining. <laughs> Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can uh, gather together. Um, Lord, it's just, it's nice. It's refreshing to be with each other. 
And Lord, I pray for those that aren't able to be here. Lord, I just pray that they would uh, be wise if they attend in the future. Lord, thank you for those that have braved it. Lord, I pray for protection for all of us. Thank you for all those that have continued to support the church. Lord, I just pray today that we'd be captivated by your grace and your love. That we would appreciate what you have done for us. And Lord, I just thank you for my friends in this room. Thank you for my friends that are watching this on the internet later on today. And I thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.